Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is James chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10 as I will be preaching on the theme of the nature of sin. So as we read this, start to look and see what you see about the nature of sin. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves there to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is God's word. Sin is not a popular topic. I was listening to a sermon from an evangelical preacher the other day, and he mentioned that There were some people who asked him why he didn't preach much on sin. And his answer was that, I like to stay positive. The biggest church in America has grown because it's always speaking in the positive. I mean, who wants to preach on these words Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. To do so seems to play into the hands of those who portray Christianity as a joyless, straight-jacket religion that is oppressive. They look at God and portray him as a demagogue who is trying to take away any of our happiness and heap loads of guilt upon us. But we've chosen to speak on sin this weekend and this morning because we need to take sin seriously. We can't hide from it. We can't make excuses for it. We can't explain it away as though it doesn't exist in our lives. Sin is not a mistake in judgment. 
Sin is us raising our fist into the face of God and saying, how dare you try to tell me how to live? Sin is a trampling on other people that God loves in order to get ours first. Sin diminishes who we are. It twists and perverts the image of God in each of us that God created us to be. Look around our world and see the damage and the effects of sin, the wars of aggression, the terrorism, the executions, the mass kidnappings and enslavements. And look at our own nation. Again, we have murder, rampant murder, kidnapping, human trafficking, embezzlements, people using one another. Look in our own hearts and there is bitterness and jealousy, self-centeredness. We hold grudges. We battle one another because we are trying to get our own. Sin is a poison in our lives and in our society. There is a preacher in Australia who was preaching about the damage of sin and One of the men in the congregation met him in his office afterwards. And he said, you know, I I think you should not preach on sin so much. Maybe you should label it something else because I believe while you preach on sin, you make the young people feel bad. And maybe you give them ideas of ways they might sin. And uh, so I think maybe you could relabel it as mistakes that people make that can be damaging. The preacher went to his shelf and he pulled down a bottle. And he said, see this bottle? It says strychnine here. And in big words right underneath it says poison. What you're asking me to do is to relabel this bottle. Perhaps we could label it essence of peppermint. But if we do so, people are more likely to take it and die because of it. We have to call this the poison it is. We have to call sin the poison that it is. If we're going to do battle with sin, because truly we should be at war with sin, if we are going to do battle, we need to understand the nature of our enemy. And that's what we hope to do this morning. Look at the nature of our enemy and then give some sense of how we win the battle over sin. Well, let's pray. Our Father, it is your spirit that is going to win the battle. It is your spirit that takes the word of God and makes it come alive in our lives. It is your spirit that gives it clarity and uh, teaches us how to apply it, how to move forward with you. I pray, Lord, the word sin would not turn any of us off today but it would draw us to you. Father, open each of our hearts to your message this morning. Amen. We see in this passage the nature of sin. As we first look at the words, you could list the sins here. It says there are quarrels, 
There are fights. There is murder. And then again, he says, there are fighting and quarreling. And those are sins as they've popped their heads out in the lives of people. We can list many more, but he right now begins by looking at the sins that are happening among us. But he doesn't stop there and say, well, stop quarreling, stop fighting, don't murder. What he does is he takes us underneath that sin so we can get at the root of sin in our lives. I have a brick patio in, the pa- in our backyard, but it's sand that we put in between the bricks. And every year, weeds grow up. And it makes the patio not look as pleasing as it should. And so I would go out there and I would grab the weed and, and pull it off, and the green would come off and it would look pretty good. But what I'd discover is it wouldn't be long before that weed was back there again. I had to get to the root, and to try to get in between the bricks, it was impossible with your fingers, so I would take a nail and dig the nail up underneath the roots to loosen those roots so I could pull not just the weed, but what was causing the weed to grow, what was feeding the weeds, and that was the root. And James here is not just giving us the the weed on top of quarreling, fighting, murdering. He is telling us what is the weed underneath, what is causing this sin to pop out of our lives. And so what does he say? He says, what causes the quarrels, what causes the fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war with you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So he gives us a picture of what's going on underneath the surface of our sins. And he's saying there are desires that you want satisfied. And your flesh says, you have these desires, and here's the way to fulfill them. And what's happening is these people, their desires are not getting fulfilled. And so they fight for getting what they think will fulfill these desires in their lives. The three words used here about what's going underneath really pictures that they've already lost the battle that's going on inside of them. The first word here is the pleasures that are inside you. It's the word from which we get the word hedonism. A hedonistic lifestyle is somebody who devotes himself to pleasure because he thinks pleasure is going to satisfy, pleasure is going to fulfill. And so this person has already lost the battle and everything is, I will find fulfillment and joy in life Because when I get my pleasures satisfied and fulfilled. The second word here that's translated desires is literally over-desires. It takes the word desires and it puts epi in front of it, which magnifies it. And so he's not saying that it's the desires that are causing the trouble, but it's over-desires. 
desires have turned into idols in our lives. We are too passionate about fulfilling something that we think, or getting something that we think is going to fulfill us. And of course, the third word is the word to lust after, to covet. And again, it's because we are not getting it. We look at other people's lives and they've got what is going to make us happy and we become jealous and covet and sometimes we try to go get it from them. And that causes quarrels and fights. Those kinds of things would lead to murder. I don't think the church that James is speaking to has probably resorted to murder. I think he would have been uh, talked a little more about it. But it's those kinds of sins that those passions that ultimately do lead to murder. See, we don't sin because we just think I'm going to sin today. We always believe our sins are going to lead to some sense of fulfillment in our lives. There is a desire within our lives we think this sin will help satisfy And as we unpack this passage further, we see it isn't that the desires themselves are sinful. Because James doesn't say, you see, the problem is these pleasures and over-desires in your life. And so you need to kill any desire you have in life. What you need to do is join a monastery, live an ascetic life. And if you ever have a desire, kill it, kill it. He doesn't say that. His solution is, you have not because you ask not. And what is that telling us? It's telling us that God sees these desires and says, I will fulfill them for you. So what we see is there are God-given real desires in our hearts that God wishes to fulfill. But when God, when we don't turn to God to fulfill those desires, we still have these empty holes in our lives and these desires start to turn into passions and we pursue things out in the world that we think will satisfy and fulfill those desires. And we always discover they don't. And so instead of us saying, well, you know, my lying and my cheating or my embezzling money didn't provide me security that I want, they don't say, I better turn to God. Instead we say, I better embezzle more money. Then he says this, he says, you have not because you ask not. Then you ask because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on yourselves. He's saying, very often what we do as Christians is, for instance, there is a desire in my life. And I believe there is a God-designed desire for significance, that I, I, I need to matter to somebody, somewhere. There has to be a purpose that, that 
I'm created to fulfill so that I'm valuable to somebody. That is not a bad desire. You don't have that desire. But the problem is if we don't turn to God, we might turn to, I mean, the extreme is teens that turn to gangs. They turn to gangs because they want to be important. They want to belong, which is another divine desire placed in our lives. We want love. And so they turn there to have a group to belong to, to be loved. Others, uh, say students today, you feel, well, I will only, I'm only important if I make the honor roll or some if I'm valedictorian of the class. And so our passion is I will be valuable. Everybody will look up to me and say, wow, that person's special. If I make the honor roll or I'm, I'm top 10% of the class or I get to go one of the best colleges, now, what if I'm not a good student? I'm going to start to cheat on exams. I'm going to get somebody else to write my paper so I can get those A's. And that's what we say, well, that's sin. No, underneath that sin, what has caused that sin is turning away from God to get a sense of being valuable. People in the corporate world, I'm only valuable if I'm the CEO, if I reach the top. And so to get there, we'll do anything and we will step on people and we will lie about other people. We will puff ourselves up and we say, oh, that's all that sin. Ah, But underneath that sin is the sin of trying to find our value outside of God in worldly things. And so what God's saying here is, you haven't turned to me. You haven't asked me to help fulfill you. And when you do, you aren't actually asking me to fulfill you. You are praying for those things in the world to fulfill you. So you might pray instead, God, make me CEO. Well, the same dynamic is going underneath the sin. I am only going to be fulfilled and feel valuable if I'm CEO. And so instead of stepping on people to get there, I pray and ask God for that. And what God's saying, you aren't pursuing me when you pray like that. You're still pursuing the things of the world to fulfill you. Put it another way. God says, I love you. I created you, I will fulfill you in every divine desire that is in your life. And when we say to God, that's nice, and we turn to things in the world, we are turning to other lovers. Instead of turning back to the one who loves us, we are turning to other lovers And what do we call it when somebody does that within a marriage? We call it adultery. And so doesn't James. If we look at uh, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, the word here is literally adulteresses. It's the feminine tense. And he's not trying to say, you know, there are women among us who are committing adultery. He's speaking about spiritual adultery. We turn from the love of God to other lovers. He isn't saying only women are doing this. What he's saying is men and women, we are all women before God. We are all the bride of Christ. And that's what he calls the church. We see the same imagery in the Old Testament where God calls the church, excuse me, Israel his bride. Isaiah, Jeremiah speak of sin as committing adultery. You've gone after other gods. You've gone after other lovers. What I'm trying to show you here is the nature of sin. What is going on in our lives is adultery against God when we sin. And when someone commits adultery and they finally get what they've done, what's their response? Look again, verse 9. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. If someone has committed adultery and they finally get it, they don't go, oh, well, all sins are the same. Sorry about that, honey. But we have a new beginning tomorrow. No, if the adulterer truly gets it, they will do what this passage is talking about. We will mourn. We will weep. Our laughter is turned to mourning. Our joy is turning to gloom. We feel wretched. We are horrified by what we have done. God is saying, you've committed adultery against me. Do you get it? The nature of sin is the committing of adultery. It is not the failing of a test or an exam. See, very often that's the way we view sin, is God has all these commitments, and if I don't get all of them, if I don't get 100%, I've failed the test. No, that's not the nature of sin. It's what James says it is. But it makes a gigantic difference in our lives. For instance... If sin were, I failed a test. What does a teacher feel when you fail a test? They're sad about it. It's like, oh, I wish you had passed. I wish you had studied harder. Maybe next time you will study harder, but I had to fail you too bad. What does a person you've committed adultery against feel? They are broken. They are shattered. God doesn't feel, oh, well, try harder next time. He is brokenhearted 
over our sin. We have stuck a sword in the heart of God when we turn to other lovers. If sin is failing a test, how do you feel when you've failed the test? You're like, darn, I've missed an opportunity. I'm going to have to go back. And I don't really feel good about myself. Um, What do you feel when you've committed adultery? What James has just said. If we don't understand the nature of sin, our hearts aren't going to be tugged. They're not going to be transformed to say, God, give me victory. If I have failed the test, I will say, God, help me pass the test. If I've committed adultery, I'll say, God, transform my heart, transform my life. I pray that I will never, ever fall into this again. I will be diligent temptations that are thrown my way, God. Remove this from my life. We need to understand the nature of sin. But James also gives us a picture of how to overcome sin. Take a look at verse 6. By the way, I see I skipped something in verse (laughs) 5. When he says, Or do you not suppose that there is no purpose to the scripture when he says he jealously yearns over the spirit he has made to dwell within us. What, he's, what that passage is saying is God loves you. The scripture has said it in the Old Testament. God jealously yearns for a relationship with your spirit. That's why sin is so horrible against him because he loves you. If he didn't love you, he could brush it off. But he loves you so much, it breaks his heart when we sin against him. So, okay. uh, So God gives greater grace. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now notice it says he he gives more grace, greater grace. See, We are saved by grace. We've sinned before God. Christ took our sins. That grace of God is poured onto our lives, bringing us forgiveness of our sins when we trust Christ as Savior. But there's more to grace than that. It isn't Jesus saves us and now we get a second chance and and let's move on. God's saying, no, there's grace that will give you victory over sin. There's grace that will help you overcome those sins in your life that you've been battling. So if you are proud, you're not going to have access to that grace. It's only the humble that have access to it. So think in terms of a proud person. It could well be that what it's saying here is you cannot overcome sin without God overcoming it through you. So the proud person saying, I can do it. I'll just control my mind more. I will strengthen my will and I will overcome that sin. And God says, I oppose you. You're not going to have the grace to overcome it. 
It is the humble person who says, God, I need your strength. It is only your spirit working through me. It is only the truth of the gospel as it floods upon me that I will be able to do battle with sin as it should be done. It could be that the humble person, the proud person is saying, I have these desires, God, I know how to fulfill them. I will get to CEO. I will go to the best schools. I will work my way up. I will spend 20 hours a day working and I will reach CEO. God says, I oppose the proud. The grace is coming to the humble, the humble who say, God, I need you to fulfill the design desires in my life. So, fighting sin, no, be humble before God to allow the grace of God to continue to pour into your life. And he says in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, As God's calling us to submit to him, the devil is still going to be whispering into our ears. And so we need to be alert to his tactics. Satan's tactics are essentially to say, those desires are good desires. And he will put commercials in our minds to picture how Things in our world will fulfill those desires. I go back many, many years on this one, but it's the most vivid in my mind of a commercial that is so opposite of the truth and reality. It was from Cool Cigarettes. Um, You know, they actually used to allow cigarettes to be, have commercials on TV. Um, And so there's all these smokers in this very arid, dry, desert-like atmosphere, and the smoke is bothering each other. And then you have this wonderful, sweet voice saying, come up, come up to cool. And somebody would take the package of cool, and he'd walk these steps. And up here, you're in this beautiful oasis of palm trees and fresh air, and you're the only one smoking. And you just have this pleasurable look on your face as you breathe in that fresh air. That's what Satan does to us. And we don't know better. He's going to put the most beautiful picture in your mind of how you are going to be fulfilled. And what he's saying is, if you submit to God, if you move toward God, You won't buy into those things. You will know the temptations of the world and you'll resist the devil. And when the devil can't get into you there, he's going to flee because that's where he's trying to enter into your life. That's where he got Eve in the Garden of Eden. God provided everything for Adam and Eve. Talk about significance. God made them in his image and he made them CEO over the entire world. Talk about love. You had God breathe his spirit, personally fashioning Abraham, 
breathing his spirit into him, saying, Abraham, is there anything you need? I see you want one like you. You need one like you. I will create woman for you. I will walk in the cool of the day every day to be with you. And talk about, you know, need for food. And it's like, here's paradise. Yet Satan was able to get into Eve by saying, Eve, has God really provided for all your desires and needs? Is he letting you have everything in the garden? And Eve begins to say, well, no, he doesn't let us have that tree. And Satan says, you know why you can't have that tree? Because in that tree you will find your full power and significance. God made you as a son Daughter of God, well, you can be God just like him if you take that tree. That's the way Satan works. He doesn't say, go take a gun and shoot somebody. He works in your heart to say, I need to be loved. And these people aren't loving me. And so I'm going to get back at them. So, Resist the devil. Third, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. What I've been saying all along is God wishes to fulfill those desires in our lives. Draw near to him. He draws near to you and you will find fulfillment in him. Don't believe the lie that Eve did is God isn't giving you everything you need. And ultimately, you will find your ultimate love is the love that God showed on the cross of Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his love toward you while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Is there a greater love by a greater person Can we let that love fulfill our need for love? And how valuable are you to other people? We want to become more valuable, but the big question is how valuable are you to God? How much would God pay for you? How much money would he pay? If he took gold and silver and precious stones, how much would he pay? He says, Peter says, he didn't pay with gold, silver, precious stones. He prayed. Paid with the blood of Jesus Christ. Is, is that enough to help you feel valuable no matter what other people think? And, and do you feel secure? Can you feel secure by looking at the cross and saying, God gave the biggest gift possible to provide the greatest thing possible, access to him? As Paul says in Romans, if, if he gave his, his own son, will he not freely give you anything you need for security in life? Is it not enough security in life to say, if I die here, it's not the worst thing that happens, it's the best thing that happens because I go to be with the Lord himself? Do you see how the gospel cries out, I will fulfill those divine needs in your life? Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Um, John Owen 
being quoted a lot this weekend. In the foreword to his, his book, John Piper wrote this about John Owens in his book about fighting sin. He said, resisting sin according to this Puritan divine comes not by deadening our affections, but by awakening them to God himself. Do not seek to empty your cup as a way to avoid sin, but rather seek to fill it up with the spirit of life so there is no longer room for sin. Do you get the imagery? So often we do battle with sin by trying to say, I got to get that out of my life. I got to get that out of my life. John Owens is saying, no, you need to get God into your life. You need to know what God is providing for you. You need to draw near to God and get him. He fills your cup and that pushes the sin out. There's no need for the sin when you find your fulfillment in God. Um, Thomas Brooks this, for every look at sin, and we are looking at sin this morning, but for every look at sin, take five looks at your Savior. That's positive. <laughs> and by the way, the most positive things in life, the greatest Positive messages we could ever preach are found around the cross in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is greater, more positive news than you are at peace with God? But we don't understand how great that news is until we realize we were enemies of God, but now we're at peace with God. You are freed from guilt because Christ paid for your sin. That isn't great news unless we realize how guilty we were because of our sin. We are given a new life in Christ, but we don't value that unless we realize we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Do you see, if we diminish sin, we diminish the meaning of the cross the more we understand how horrific sin is, the more glorious the cross of Christ is. In one of our home fellowships a while back, we were going to, through Psalm 51, which is David's confession of sin. It's, he really lays it out there. He shows the, how, how horrible sin is. And the question was raised in the group, why do we have to be talking about sin and guilt? Why can't we talk about happier things, more positive things? And I had the answer already sitting in the room with me, and I knew it. So I turned to Jim Medallia. Most of you know Jim. Jim passed a couple years ago. He used to sit right in that corner in his wheelchair as as MS just drained the life out of him. You could almost see it week after week. Uh, We were in the nursing home, in his nursing home, this home fellowship. And I turned to Jim. And I said, Jim, are you a sinner? And Jim's eyes brightened up. That wry smile of his broadened across his face. And he said, 
yes, I am a sinner. And I said, Jim, why are you smiling about being a sinner? He says, because Jesus Christ died for my sin. He has saved me from my sin. Christ is my savior. The most positive news we can ever have begins with what sounds so negative and it is our sin. But when we understand the depths of our sin, we will then begin to realize the heights of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Savior. For boy, if we were stuck in the negativity of sin with no hope, we would be the most miserable of all creatures. But because there is hope in Christ, we are the creatures who have access to the joy for which you created us. A joy that comes from drawing near to you, basking in your love, displayed through the sacrifice of Christ. Fill our lives with your gospel truth every day. Fill it so that sin floods out of it. In the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, we seek to live for you. Grant us victory through your spirit and through the gospel by which we live. Amen.